Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Brian Freeman at his April 7th visit to Rum River Library in Anoka. Brian Freeman is Minnesota's own master of psychological suspense. He is best known for his internationally acclaimed Jonathan Stride detective series set in and around Duluth. His 2006 debut, Immoral, won the McCavity Award and was a finalist for the Edgar, Dagger, Anthony, and Barry Awards for Best First Novel. His second novel, Stripped, was a finalist for the Minnesota Book Award. 2011's The Bone House was also a finalist for the Minnesota Book Award and the Audi Award. Freeman's titles have been printed in 20 different languages and sold in 46 countries. His highly anticipated sixth full-length stride novel, The Cold Nowhere, was released in April 2014. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate all of you coming out on, uh, on the first truly gorgeous night of the season to join me here today. Uh, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. I, I, will, I will tell you that when it comes to doing events, uh, I have noticed sort of an unusual phenomenon, and that is when you write books that have titles like uh, Immoral, um, Stripped, uh, and Stalked, which were the titles of the first three, um, you, you discover pretty quickly that uh, people are very anxious to read the books, but they're a little nervous about the idea of getting to know you personally. Um, yeah, and I, and I kind of thought this was my imagination, and, uh, and, and then I did a book signing uh, uh, in Minneapolis at one point, and uh, this gentleman came up to me, and uh, he told me that uh, his book club had, uh, had read one of my books and, and, and just loved it. And uh, I said, uh, well, you know, gosh, I, you should have invited me to come and, and join the discussion. I, I do that all the time. Well, he looked at me rather sheepishly and said, well, um, we all took a look at your photo on your website, uh, and we thought you looked kind of scary. <laughs> so, uh, so I have a new photo on the website now, which <laughs> hopefully is the non-scary version. Uh, and I'm not wearing the leather jacket tonight, so, you know, it's okay. Uh, I don't know what it is about me in photographs, though. Uh, the very first time I, uh, I ended up having an author photograph taken, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was very cool. Uh, this is way back uh, when Immoral was, was first coming out, and uh, I was going over to the, to the London Book Fair, and um, my Italian publisher wrote to me and said, we're going to have a, a photographer come and, and take your picture uh, in London for the, for, the, for the book. And I thought, well, how cool is this? So, um, so I, met this, uh, I met this photographer at this little church in London, and uh, uh, he walks up to me, and I swear, first words out of his mouth, don't worry about the double chin, we can airbrush that right out. 
Hopefully there's a little less of me today than, than there was back then. Uh, well, actually, I, I, I got to tell you, the, when, you know, I, the, the, the person that had the most difficulty when, um, when my first, uh, first book came out was actually my mom. Um, because she'd obviously been waiting as, as long as I had uh, for, um, for my first book to come out. And uh, it comes out, and, you know, what's the title? Immoral. So, um, and nonetheless, you know, she was my marketer-in-chief, and she's going around telling all, uh, telling all of her friends, you've got to go out and, and buy my son's book. Oh, what's it called? Uh, immoral. Um, <laughs> well, she told her doctor at the clinic this, and sure enough, he went out and bought a copy of Immoral, uh, read it, loved it. Uh, he wanted to make sure he remembered to tell her this the next time she came in for an appointment. So he wrote immoral on a post-it note, <laughs> put it in her file. <laughs> so the next time my mom went to the clinic, she wound up seeing a different doctor <laughs> who was looking at her very strangely the entire time. So the <laughs> The next time she came in to see her regular doctor, he came into the office laughing. Turns out this other doctor had come to him after her appointment and said, why did you put that note in her file? She seems like such a nice woman. So, oh, my mom. It, uh, she, my, you know, my mom's the Harlequin romance reader, so uh, it, it, it usually takes her a few months to kind of work up the courage to read one of my books, and uh, only during, you know, bright, bright daylight. Doesn't want to read it at night. Um, well, uh, it, uh, I, uh, I was looking back at, at publication dates uh, uh, a few days ago, and, and uh, I realized that uh, The Burying Place, which was uh, the last Jonathan Stride novel that I had out, uh, came out in 2010. Um, so it has been nearly four years uh, since, uh, since a stride novel has uh, uh, been based uh, here in Duluth and, and, and out in the U.S. And um, so I, I do understand the, uh, uh, the impatient emails that I have been uh, receiving uh, from readers. Uh, who I, I, it's, it's been a fairly busy period uh, these last few years while stride was, was taking sort of a well-earned vacation. Uh, but... Uh, uh, so the, uh, after The Burying Place came out, and The Burying Place was a finalist for uh, Best Hardcover Novel in the, the Thriller Awards uh, in New York. And um, it was the, the other nominees were uh, uh, Michael Connolly, uh, Jeffrey Deaver, uh, Mo Hyder from the UK, and uh, uh, some, some Sanford guy. I don't know. <laughs> not, not many people have heard of him. Um, I don't know. He's a good writer, though. I, one of these days, he might make it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, um, uh, so after the burying place, uh, I, I had put uh, Jonathan Stride through through so much in those first five books. I, I thought the poor guy needed a vacation. So I uh, I wrote a, a standalone novel set over in Door County uh, in Wisconsin called The Bone House, and um, I, I intended it to be a standalone, uh, but uh, it introduced a character. Uh, named Cab Bolton in that book. A uh, very, very different kind of detective than Jonathan Stride. He's a, he's a Florida detective. He's uh, about six foot six and uh, younger. Uh, he's he's the, the son of a, uh, a Hollywood actress, so uh, he's just a very, very different, very, very fun kind of character to work with. And, and Cab was, was so well received by, uh, by readers and publishers that a lot of people started saying, well, when are we going to see the next Cab book? And uh, so... Uh, uh, actually, now the Bone House is, is sort of becoming the, the first in a new series uh, because the next book that I release in the U.S. will be another Cab Bolton book. So I'll actually have parallel series 
going with, uh, with Stride and, uh, and with cabs. So, uh, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, and then uh, after the Bone House, uh, I released an, another uh, pure standalone novel uh, called Spilled Blood. And uh, Spilled Blood uh, uh, also became a finalist for uh, Best Hardcover Novel in the, uh, the Thriller Awards. And uh, uh, so uh, that, was, that was last summer in, uh, in New York. And uh, having been through this once before with uh, The Burying Place, I, uh, I went out there with keeping my expectations very low uh, and uh, was thoroughly convinced that uh, they were um, they were going to give the award to someone else. And uh, you know this big banquet hall at uh, at the Grand Hyatt in uh, in New York. And uh, I had my editor on one side and Pat and Gary from Once Upon a Crime in Minneapolis on the other side. And uh, they got to the the award and it's the last one of the evening. It's the big one for for best hardcover novel. And uh, 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 darn if they didn't announce Spill Blood by Brian Freeman as as the winner. And uh, it. Um, that was truly one of the most, thank you, thank you. That was, uh, that was truly one of the most uh, amazing moments of, of, uh, of my professional life. It was, uh, it, it was just truly an extraordinary experience. I, I sort of staggered my way up to the podium. I, I uh, thank heavens my editor was actually recording what I said because I have, would have had no idea what I was saying up there. Uh, and I, I made it back to the I made it back to the table, and and uh, Pat from the bookstore she got up and, and gave me this big hug, and that's when I completely lost it. I just was sobbing, it, 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 you know, very 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 thrillerly, you know. There. <laughs> so, but yeah, but I'm still scary. Uh, so um, so so there we had two 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 quasi standalones. The Bone House now is not really a standalone, but uh, I uh, I thought I could get away with two. Uh, before I went back to Stride, but uh, I knew I couldn't push it past then. So, uh, so here we are with, uh, with the cold nowhere, uh, and, uh, and Jonathan Stride is back. Uh, we are back up in uh, Duluth. Uh, in fact, we, uh, we just launched the cold nowhere last week with uh, a big, uh, big fundraiser for the Duluth Library up in, uh, up in Duluth, and uh, uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a you know, huge crowd, and uh, they, um, uh, the mayor, uh, the mayor declared Brian Freeman Day in Duluth, gave me a big proclamation, and uh, the, uh, the, the Duluth police actually uh, gave me an authentic Duluth police shield, which is something that they, they never do. So that was, uh, that, was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And I, I was, I was kind of giving them a hard time up there in Duluth because, um, I mean, you figure, um, you know, I, here I take this wonderful, this wonderful area like Duluth, and I... I uh, Turn it into this hotbed of, of you know violence and serial killers, uh, <laughs> abuse, corruption, sex clubs, you know, uh, and uh, you know I, I kind of have been expecting the mayor to start slipping me brochures about Mankato, um, <laughs> but no, no, they you know they keep inviting me back and uh, and and giving me you know nice nice awards and things. So that that's kind of the the uh, that's kind of the epitome of Minnesota nice uh, is is. Uh, those folks up in uh, those folks up in Duluth. Um, in fact, it was it was kind of a classic because uh, uh, I a at the event I, I met this woman and um, uh, she told me that she was the uh, uh, the marketing manager at uh, at Miller Hill Mall uh, in Duluth. And uh, I just kind of laughed and said, "Oh well, I'm working on my next Stride novel, and I have to tell you, some really bad things are going to be happening up at the mall." <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, you know, you'd, you'd kind of figure most marketing people would take that news and go, well, maybe we could you know, do that somewhere else or relocate it. She's like, well, do you need like a behind the scenes tour? Do you need to get in after hours or anything? <laughs> So now you realize when I say bad things, I mean really bad things. These are my books we're talking. Oh yeah, great. <laughs> well, you know, my experience with, uh, with Duluth is uh, a little different than most people's um, because, uh, you know, most people go up there and, and they're, they're you know, looking at the lake and the, you know, all the beautiful surroundings and, and uh, I'm driving up and there's, you know, Anger Tower up on the hillside and uh, I'm thinking, yep, killed somebody up there. So. <laughs> Well, it's, um, uh, you know, pe people will ask, you know, why I chose, why I chose Duluth uh, as the setting for so many of my books. And, um, uh, and I think that it's, um, I, I was looking for just the perfect reflection of the kinds of stories that I tell. And uh, I, I actually first saw Duluth, uh, gosh, it's like 32 years ago now. Uh, Marsha and I, um, we're in, Carl in college together at Carleton at that point, and uh, we ended up renting a car and, and doing a little driving trip up the North Shore, um, <laughs> a trip that my parents still don't know about. Um, <laughs> we've only been married 30 years, or they're, they're not quite ready for it yet. Um, but, uh, so we went, through, uh, we went through Duluth, and, uh, and, and I can remember, even back then, thinking that this would be the perfect place to set suspense novels, and uh, and so when I was developing the concept for uh, for uh, Immoral and and creating the character of Jonathan Stride, I just felt that Duluth would be kind of the perfect reflection of of who Stride was uh, as a character, um, uh, because uh, sort of Stride and Duluth are are kind of inseparable. He is very much this quintessential northern Minnesotan, uh, and he's known a lot of loss in his life, uh, and uh, uh, he, he doesn't, he's certainly not a superhero. I don't write about superheroes, I don't write about supervillains. I, I just write about real people uh, who are drawn across some, some, some terrible lines and, and, and pulled into some very difficult situations. And uh, Stride is the kind of character that he does not always make the, uh, the right choices. Uh, sometimes he make mis makes mistakes, sometimes he does things that drive readers crazy. Um, and yet, at, at heart, he is so passionate about what he does and about the people he helps. And, uh, and, and uh, in, in the face of setbacks, he's got this step-by-step -step approach to, to, to finding the truth and, and finding out what happened. And, uh, and that's really why I named him Stride, is, is I wanted to capture that sense of doggedness and determination that, uh, that you find in a place like Duluth where uh, people just kind of tuck their chin against the storm and, uh, and, and keep moving on. Um, Although I think this season has kind of tested perhaps even the hardiest of Duluthians. Uh, I, I had no, no idea when I titled the book The Cold Nowhere that it would prove to, that it would prove to be quite as prophetic uh, as, as it did this season. Um, well, uh, you know, D Duluth is, uh, Duluth has a wonderful combination of elements that, that work for the kind of books that I write. It's, um, you know, when, I was, when I was starting out, I, I didn't want to, you know, write big city crime fiction. I thought that we had a lot of great writers out there who did books set in places like, you know, LA and, and Miami and, and Chicago and, and places like that. That really is not where my heart is. I wanted to do very Midwestern crime fiction. I wanted books that were more set outdoors. I wanted books that, that captured more of the, the small town essence. I wanted the, the weather to be uh, a, a part of my novels and stories in the same way that the weather is, is a part of the day-to-day -day life. 
of, of Midwesterners. Uh, and that's just not true of, of some of those other big cities. Uh, and so you look at Duluth, and it's, it's just the right size for, for my stories, because it's, it's big enough that you can imagine some dark things happening there, and yet it's also small enough that you're always kind of bumping into your past. And, uh, and one of the themes that, that comes up again and again in my novels is that you can't ever really get away from your past, and it always has a way of, of bubbling up and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and coming back to haunt you. And, uh, and that's very much true of, of uh, a lot of the books that I write. Um, you've got the natural setting uh, up in Duluth. You've, you've got the, you know, the lake. You've got the northern woods. You know, in, in some ways, I kind of think of Duluth as kind of sort of this last pioneer outpost before you get to uh, the, the Canadian wilderness. And there's this sense that uh, they're, they're kind of holding back this, this, this great dark bear of, of uh, the, the, the wildness uh, that, that exists just outside the borders of the city. Uh, and, and obviously, you have these very uh, extreme weather conditions up there, and, um, uh, and, and that, plays a, uh, that plays a big role in, uh, in a lot of my books. Where, wherever Stride goes, I, you just know the weather's going to suck. I'm sorry. It's just <laughs> so, um, well, um, it's, been, uh, it, it's been quite the, quite the ride for me over, uh, over these past 10 years. Immoral came out in, uh, in 2005, uh, and um, I, I'm one of those people that, uh, being a writer and, and publishing books, that is what I have wanted to do uh, my whole life. Uh, that's been my dream as far back as I can remember. Uh, I had a, um, a wonderful uh, eighth grade composition teacher. I was living uh, with my folks out in California at that point, and uh, I, um, I can remember that she would tell me, she recognized you know, how much I loved writing, and uh, she told me, uh, you know, when you come to my class, don't worry about the lesson plans, just sit there and write your stories. And uh, that's what I did for most of her class. And uh, after, after that class, I sat down uh, and, and started in on my first full-length novel and uh, spent about a year and a half working on that and, and finished that. And uh, uh, from that point forward, uh, that, was what, uh, that was what I wanted to do with my life, was, uh, was publish books. Um, but you know, publishing is, is uh, an extremely difficult business. Uh, it's just as tough now as it was years ago. And uh, uh, I actually wrote uh, a total of five novels uh, in my life uh, before I ever even started the book that became uh, my breakthrough book, Immoral. And uh, they're all tucked away in my nightstand drawer. And uh, you know, I would send out uh, uh, query letters to, to agents and publishers, and uh, they would come back and uh, uh, in, in pristine condition, uh, paperclip, you know, not even you know, moved on the, uh, on the samples. And, uh, you know, you just knew that no one spent 30 seconds looking at, uh, at that work. And uh, uh, it, was, um, it, it was a very discouraging, uh, discouraging thing. Uh, and there were a lot of days where I thought, gosh, you know, why am I banging my head against the wall of this, this crazy business? There are other things that I want to do with my life. Uh, but, yeah, something just kept me going back to it. Um, I, took a, um, uh, I took a job in, uh, uh, in Minneapolis, very busy job at a, uh, a law firm, uh, and uh, I was, uh, uh, it was a very glamorous job. Uh, I was director of marketing and public relations at an international law firm. Um, I'll tell you a quick story about just how glamorous that is. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going home on the bus one night, and I was chatting with this woman, and she asked me, so what do you do? Uh, I said, uh, oh, I work at Fagery and Benson. It's a law firm downtown. 
Well, she looked at me very suspiciously and said, oh, so you're a lawyer. And I just laughed and said, no, 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 it's, it's, it's even worse. I do public relations for lawyers. <laughs> she didn't laugh. <laughs> she looked at me dead serious and said, you're right, that is worse. <laughs> well, I'd been, <laughs> I'd been working at, uh, at Fagri for a couple of years. It, it was a busy job. I, I had really not done any writing during that period of time. And, uh, uh, I can remember one time uh, Marsha and I were sitting in the living room and uh, I don't even remember what we were talking about and really out of nowhere uh, I just burst into tears. And uh, it took me a while to figure out why I was so upset and, uh, and I, I finally realized that uh, I hadn't been writing and I felt that I wasn't being true to myself and that I still believed that what I was supposed to be doing was, was writing books. And, uh, and so despite all of the, the setbacks over the years, uh, I decided that I needed to try again. And so the very next night, I sat down and started work on uh, a new novel, uh, which would be the sixth novel that I wrote in my life. Uh, and that was the book that became Immoral. Uh, so uh, I always look back on that time, and uh, I'm awfully grateful uh, that, uh, that I did not quit because uh, I, would have missed, uh, I would have missed an amazing ride. Um, but of course, you're working, on, um, you're working on a new book. You have no idea that, um, that it's going to be any different from the, the, the books that you've done before. And, and you know, I felt like I, I needed to take a new approach to the business side of things. I, I, you know, just sending out the queries felt like I was just kind of shouting into a canyon and, and the, you know, the voice was just getting lost. And so I, I tried to figure out a new approach. And actually, what I actually started doing was reading the acknowledgments pages of first novels that I had enjoyed to try to get a sense of what was it that these writers were doing that I had somehow missed along the way. And um, uh, what I discovered was that in almost every case, the writer had cultivated kind of a key relationship uh, with someone uh, connected to the business that was able to sort of, you know, help you get past the Praetorian Guard and, and help get your foot in the door. Um, in fact, <laughs> uh, one of the ones I enjoyed the most, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it was, uh, it was Joseph Finder. Uh, I read the acknowledgments for, for his first novel, and um, you read all the way through to the end, and he says, uh, and uh, I'd also like to give a, a very special thanks for all of his help and support to my brother, who is editorial director of The New Yorker magazine. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, that's... That's a pretty good connection, um, but uh, as much as I love my brother, he's been in computer programming at Bank of America for 35 years, so that, uh, that was not going to help. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer that, that things, things happen for a reason and things happen in the time frame that they are supposed to, and uh, right around the time that, um, uh, that I had the manuscript of the book uh, ready to go, uh, I found out completely by accident that one of the lawyers in the London office that I had done quite a bit of work with was going to be um, going to an alumni event uh, with a woman who is an agent at one of London's largest literary agencies. And uh, so I sprang into action and, uh, and, and sent Robert uh, an email to ask if he would uh, uh, ask this agent to, to read my book. And uh, he was gracious enough uh, to agree to do so, and, and Allie, the agent, uh, agreed to take a look at my manuscript. And, uh, and, you know, I'd been down this road with agents many, many times in the past, and so I was certainly not getting my hopes up. And then um, one week later, 
uh, I got an email from Allie herself um, saying that she had uh, stayed up until one in the morning uh, finishing the book, uh, couldn't put it down, had already called a UK publisher that morning saying, this guy's the next Harlan Coben, I want to represent you, call me immediately. So, uh, so I called her and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and Allie said, yes, I, you know, darling, I love the, I love the book. I, I, I definitely want to be your agent. Uh, I'll handle the UK sale. My agency will deal with international rights. Uh, I could do the US deal myself, but I've got a co-agent in New York that I like to work with who also handles Jeffrey Deaver, and I'd like her to do the US sale uh, if that would be acceptable. <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I thought that would be okay. So uh, they went out, and, uh, and, and four, uh, four weeks later, we, we had deals in both the US and UK for the first two books. And, uh, and then over the course of the summer, I started getting these little newsy notes from the, the Curtis Brown Agency in London saying that they'd sold the rights to my book in Italian, and they'd sold the rights to the book in Korean, and they'd sold the rights to the book in Swedish. And, uh, uh, and then Bookspan, which at the time owned book clubs all over the world, uh, they selected Immoral as their international book of the month. And, uh, and so Immoral became the main selection uh, in uh, the Book of the Month Club and the Literary Guild and, uh, and book clubs all over the world. And, and when the dust had settled, uh, we had sold the rights to Immoral in 17 languages. And um, we, were, we were sort of off to the races. And um, of course, at that point, people started saying, wow, you're, you're like an overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, yes, overnight, as long as you skip those 20 years of abject failure and the five books in the nightstand drawer. Uh, but um, well, um, I, uh, I, I will confess that, uh, uh, you know, I, I've told that story about how I got started for, you know, the last, uh, the last 10 years, and uh, it's, um, sorry, it's, it's kind of a hard story to tell now, because this was a very, uh, this was a very difficult winter. Um, uh, my, my lovely agent, Allie, um, uh, died very, very unexpectedly and, and tragically. Uh, 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 died of a cerebral hemorrhage at, at age 45 uh, in her sleep. Uh, that was uh, that was just in February, and uh, and so uh, uh, it's um, it's been very difficult for for me and Marcia to just sort of understand what it's like to be in a in a world without Allie. I mean, she was such a an amazing, passionate force of nature uh, that. Uh, uh, it's just sort of hard to imagine that, that she's not around. And, uh, and, and you know, we've made all the, the business decisions that you have to make, and, and, and uh, my, my you know, new agent is in New York, and, and you know, we're, we're, we're moving ahead, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly a very different experience now to, 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 to be going out and, and talking about the, this whole life for the past 10 years and, uh, uh, and to realize that Allie's not a part of that. So, um, and, you know, that's, that's, one of the, uh, that's one of the things about, um, about this business, the more that you go, is is that uh, you 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 have people who are, are who become very close to you, and uh, and and, uh, and and you you lose them along the way. I, I had a, a wonderful um, the the very first email fan message I ever got about uh, Immoral uh, uh, was from a woman out in uh, Northern California that uh, had gotten an advanced reader's copy. Wrote me this uh, this wonderful email about how much she loved the book and uh, and. Uh, that was exactly you know what I needed at at, uh, at that time of my life, and uh, uh, we became email friends. And uh, I, I asked her to be an advanced reader on on future books. And uh, uh, and and you know the funny thing about advanced readers is you you want certain advanced readers who are going to give you 
you know, very you know, thoughtful and, and, and strategic feedback. And, and you want some advanced readers who are just gonna say, well, that's just fabulous. Uh, and, uh, and, and Gail was the, the kind of reader that I, I knew would always you know, boost me up in my spirits. And, and I would send her early parts of the manuscript at a point where I was you know, thinking, oh, this is never gonna come together. It's never gonna work. And she would write back and say, what are you worried about? This is terrific. This is wonderful. Keep going right faster. And, uh, um, and uh, so Marcia and I had a chance to, to meet her several times out in California and, and meet her, uh, her daughter and, uh, and, and, uh, and grandson. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, we, uh, uh, we, lost, uh, we lost Gail to cancer a, a few years ago. And uh, it uh, was, was, again, just a, a, terrible, a terrible blow. And uh, uh, the only thing that I, I rely on is that, you know, whenever I'm, uh, whenever I'm writing these days, I, I still feel like uh, Gail's kind of at my side nudging me, write faster, write faster. And, uh, and now I guess Allie's kind of on the other side saying, darling, it's going to be terrific. So, um, well, gosh, way to bring a room down, Freeman. <laughs> <Hey, geez. laughs> well, uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I want to get you guys in on the, in the game and, uh, and, and, and uh, have you ask whatever questions you'd like. I'm, I'm going uh, to actually read you a little bit. Uh, the Cold Nowhere is is brand new. Uh, it's the new Jonathan Stride novel. Um, uh, because it's taken so long to get it out in the U.S. and, and we, we had an, an additional delay because it actually came out in the U.K. last spring, much to the annoyance of my American readers, uh, and, and we've been waiting ever since for it to come out in the U.S. Um, my U.K. publisher actually acquired the rights to my books and uh, for their new U.S. operation and uh, they, they told me, you know, it's going to take us a little while to get the new book out in the U.S. because we want to do it right and we want to do the marketing right. All of which is good, but it, it, it's meant it's been kind of frustrating for, for me and for you because it's taken a while for the, for the book to come out. Um, but because it was taking so long to get the cold nowhere into people's hands in the U.S., uh, I decided that I wanted to write a sort of a bonus book featuring Jonathan Stride. And so um, back in February, we released uh, an, an e-book exclusive uh, called Turn to Stone. And uh, Turn to Stone takes place, uh, they're, they're totally separate, but Turn to Stone takes place uh, in the days immediately before the action of the cold nowhere. And they, they, they sort of flow uh, perfectly together. In fact, the last line of Turn to Stone, the novella, is actually the first line of the chapter that introduces Stride again in the cold nowhere. Uh, and it had been long enough since Stride was, was out there in the, uh, in the book world that I wanted to give new readers a chance to sort of meet Stride uh, again and or meet Stride for the first time. Uh, and so Turn to Stone is, um, it's sort of all Stride. There's, there's no Serena, there's no Maggie. Uh, it, is, uh, it, it is Stride on his own. He's, he's, uh, he's driving back uh, from, uh, from Green Bay to Duluth and he stops in on a, on a snowy night. <laughs> Weather sucks, what do I tell you? Um, and he stops at a cemetery in, in Shawano and um, uh, and that's what I'm going to read you, is the very first chapter of Turn to Stone. So you can sort of have a chance to, to meet Stride again after all this time. Jonathan Stride watched the cemetery filling up with snow. The windless storm deadened every sound as it crusted over the graves and laid a bone-white sheet across the dormant grass. He used a flashlight to guide his footsteps in the darkness. It was only a small country graveyard tucked among the winter ruins of cornfields, but he didn't remember exactly where he was going. He had been here just once before. When was that? It must have been 20 years earlier, back when, back when he was still a young man. 
He and his wife, Cindy, had made a pilgrimage to visit his mother after the stone had been placed. His flashlight illuminated the graves which marked deaths in rural Wisconsin dating back more than a century. Yellow mold had gathered on the older stones, obscuring the names. He saw memorials written in German reflecting the ethnic heritage of the area. Most headstones were unassuming, but others made an ironic statement with their grand size about the importance of the person buried there. Ironic, because who remembered them now? Stride saw rough-hewn edges of granite, gray, brown, and pink marble. A few dead flowers clung to the grass, reflecting visitors from months earlier, before the winter season. Wet brown leaves swept the ground. The calendar said spring, but it was a bitter April night, as cold as January. A puff of wind snaked through the cemetery, and he heard a bell ringing, no louder than a set of wind chimes. His flashlight lit up a wrought iron heart mounted on top of a stone with a rusted bell hung in the middle. He thought, don't ask for whom the bell tolls, not in this place. He wasn't really sure why he was here. He had miles to go, hours of driving, before he was back in his hometown of Duluth. The federal drug trial in Milwaukee, where he'd been testifying, had ended in an unexpected plea bargain, and he was heading home earlier than planned. He hadn't even considered that his return trip, following the northern route, avoiding road construction, would take him past the lake town of Shawano on Highway 29. Even when he spotted the town name on the highway signs, he hadn't thought of stopping. And then he was there. The snow flew, the slippery road was empty of traffic, and he wanted nothing more than to keep driving. But he saw the exit sign pointing him to Shawno, and his hands, almost of their own accord, turned the wheel of the expedition. He drove over the Wolf River and through the main street of the quiet town, which looked like a Christmas vignette in the storm. Little had changed in two decades. Small Midwestern towns got frozen by the weather and frozen by time. He remembered that the church was north of town, and he found St. Jacoby on a lonely country road among desolate farms. The church was built of brick with a slim steeple and narrow stained glass windows, nothing too showy for Lutherans. There were two modest family homes built near the church, but they were dark except for a single light in the nearest house. Otherwise, he was alone, protected by soaring pines, with wide open fields beginning where the graveyard ended. Steam clouded in front of his face as he breathed. Dampness trickled into his wavy black and gray hair as the snow settled on it and melted. He wore old jeans and an even older leather jacket. He was tall and lean. In his youth, he'd been handsome with rugged features. Cindy had always said that you couldn't be handsome without being a little immature, a little unpolished. She'd told him once that he was a man of fire, honor, ego, and stubbornness. All good things, but sometimes not in perfect proportion. Now, nearing half a century, his once young face had grown more weathered. It was the face of a northern man, an outdoorsman, burnt by sun even in the cold months, and hardened and dried by the lake wind. The lines in his forehead had deepened like canyons. His chin usually needed a shave. His dark eyes, pirate eyes, Cindy called them, carried more wisdom, but also more of the weight of the world. The women who knew him still called him handsome. Stride picked his way through the rows of tombs, hearing fallen pine cones crack under his boots. In the middle of the cemetery, he found a well-worn dirt path used by hearses to access the graves. Even the dead needed a way in, if not a way out. Standing on the road, he remembered the layout of the headstones and knew where he was going now. His mother was buried 50 yards away below a flat stone on the earth. The one other time he'd been here, Cindy had held his hand as she cried. He hadn't shed any tears himself. He walked more quickly, leaving footprints on the spongy ground, but he stopped when his flashlight shined on two gleaming pink eyes. It was a white rat glaring fiercely at him. He kicked the snow with the heel of his boot, and the rodent swished its tail and ran. 
where the rat had hunkered down, he saw the pieces of a gravestone that had been vandalized, as if by repeated blows from a heavy hammer. Broken stone dusted by snow littered the grass. Only a fragment of the original headstone remained in place. He could make out the last name, Black. Below the name, he saw the year of the person's death, which was four years earlier. Red paint marred the smooth stone. One word, Teufel. Stride remembered enough of his college German to know that Der Teufel was the devil. He bent down and touched the desecrated stone. The graffiti looked quick and ragged, sprayed with fierce hatred. First, you take a hammer to the stone, and then you violate the remains. Behind him, the tiny rusted bell rang again, fast and furiously, as if moved by an unseen hand. He straightened up and shot his light around the graveyard, then toward the cornfield and into the trees and back to the brick wall of the church. He examined the ground and saw no other footprints except his own. No one was here, just himself and the bones of Black, the bones of Der Teufel. Stride left the grave behind him. He wanted to pay his respects and be gone. It had been a mistake to leave the highway. He found the set of three stones where the trees ended. They were nothing more than rectangular outlines on the white ground. He bent down and brushed the snow and pine needles aside with his bare hand, revealing the carved name on the grave, his own name, Stride. Below the surname, he uncovered his mother's first name and family name, Beatrice Healing. There was an empty space beside her where a couple could spend eternity together, but his father had never joined her there. Not long after they had purchased the family plot, a freak wave pitched him off the side of an ore boat into Lake Superior. His body was never found. Stride cleared the two graves beside his mother, which belonged to her parents, Louis and Greta Healing. They were his grandparents, whom he had met only once as a young boy and didn't remember at all. Beatrice Healing had left Shawno as a teenager to go to college in Duluth. After she met and married Stride's father there, she'd rarely returned to her Wisconsin hometown. Even so, she'd always insisted that this was where she wanted to be buried. Stride didn't understand, and neither did his father, but she wanted to be back with her parents when she was dead. People were funny about things like that. Don't ever put me in the ground, Cindy had told him, not long before the cancer took her from him as swiftly as another rogue wave. Scatter me in the lake, Johnny. I don't ever want you wishing over old bones. That was what he had done, taken Cindy's urn in an old fishing boat with his best friend, Steve Garsky, and given up his pretty wife to the water. Now here he was, wishing over old bones. His mother was buried below him in the frozen ground. He wasn't the kind of man who talked to ghosts, and he didn't know what he would say. He switched off his flashlight and stood silently with her in the darkness, remembering. She'd been loving and vivacious when he was young, but much of the fire had gone out of her after his father's loss. She was too consumed with grief to care about anything else. For a while, he'd blamed her for letting his father's death destroy her own life, but eventually he understood. When he lost Cindy, he knew what his mother had experienced and how easy it would be to dig a hole for himself and forget how to get out. Time to go. He wasn't sure why his mother had called him back to Shawno from the highway, but he was done and ready to go home to Duluth. He headed for the church and was halfway through the cemetery when he heard the noise of a car engine and squinted into the blinding flash of headlights. A vehicle turned off the highway onto the dirt road that the hearses used to carry coffins. Stride was among the fir trees, invisible as the car came closer. It rolled to a stop 30 feet away. Its engine was still on, its lights hot and white. He could make out the emblem on the side of the sedan. It was a Shawano County Sheriff's vehicle. He realized that the car was probably here for him. Someone had spotted his flashlight beam crisscrossing the graveyard and called the police. The door of the cruiser opened and a policeman got out. He walked in front of the car, 
bathed in the glow of the headlights, which Stride found odd. When you were investigating a call, even in a small town, you didn't make yourself a target. The snow got heavier, falling through the white lights, swirling like a dust devil around the cop. The man stopped, staring up at the sky. Stride realized that the policeman couldn't be far from the vandalized headstone he'd found. Der Teufel, the devil. The policeman was in uniform. The headlights caught him from the side, leaving half his face white and half in shadow. He was about 40 years old, which made him younger than Stride by nearly a decade. The two men were about the same height, over six feet. The Shano policeman had short blonde hair, ears that jutted out a little too far from the side of his head, and a bulky physique. He was good-looking in a country-boy way, clean-shaven, with the earnestness of a farmer singing in church on Sunday. He didn't see Stride in the trees. As wholesome as he was, there was something alarming in the man's face, something stricken and pale. One fierce blue eye was deadened by pain, and the other was lost in the night. Stride didn't like what he saw there. He took a step toward the policeman wanting to announce himself, but he stopped in astonishment as the cop unhooked the holster at his belt and slid his service pistol into his hand. What the? Stride murmured. His first thought was that the policeman was about to point the gun at him, but he was wrong. Suddenly, Stride understood what was happening. He charged through the white drifts, but he was already too late to stop what came next. There was no time. The wind roared to life. The little bell rang. The handsome policeman didn't hesitate, as if he were following through on a decision that had been made long ago. He put the gun to his temple on the dark half of his forehead that was in shadow. The cop's finger tightened on the trigger. Stride shouted, but the bullet was faster than his voice. In the noise and fire that followed, the snow pouring through the headlights of the squad car turned red. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Brian Freeman and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question asker wonders how Freeman's writing has changed over the years from his very first manuscripts he wrote. When I look back at my original manuscripts, how has my writing changed? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. A lot of people ask, you know, do you want to do something with the old manuscripts, which I, I don't really. It's, it's, you know, it's nicer working on you know, new books now where I can kind of bring all of my life experience and craft experience to bear as opposed to going back to something I did 20 years ago and, and trying to bring it forward. It's, um, but it's interesting looking back at, at how it has changed. I mean, obviously, two of the novels I wrote before I was 20, and they're, they're still on binder paper in, in Bic Pen. Um, but uh, uh, it's, uh, I, I think that, I think I wanted to do more emotional suspense. And I think my earlier writing um, was more kind of straight thriller. Uh, like the book I wrote when I was 13, it was about the kidnapping of the president. You know, lots of sex and violence. You know, nothing's changed. Um, but, uh, but over the years, um, I, I, I decided that I wanted to take a different tack on, on the genre. And, and I wanted to write not, again, kind of, you know, superhero, supervillain uh, thrillers or, or political thrillers or, um, you know, books that, uh, that, that were sort of only about action. I wanted to be able to, to, to create thrillers that were really driven by the emotions and the backgrounds and the secrets and the sexuality of the characters. And that's, that's 
what you see my work evolving in. So the, the last work I did before Immoral was, a was sort of a novella called Shakers. And that was more along the line of the kind of book that I wanted to write because it was much more inside the heads of the characters and, and it, was, it was sort of a transition toward the psychological thriller that I write now. So, um, so that's, I think, how they've evolved over the years is, is they've, they, they've become sort of mature thrillers. Uh, and uh, and, and that's, what I really, that's what I really love to do. But it, it took me a while to kind of figure that out and find that for myself. Our next question is whether anyone has approached Freeman about turning his books into movies. Uh, Hollywood. Uh, has anyone approached from Hollywood? Hollywood's a tough business. Um, you know, you've, you've got to get the, the right book in the hands of the right person at the right time. And if you don't have all three, um, it, it doesn't really work. Uh, I actually, we, we came very close with, with a, a totally different book. Um, I've, got, I've got eight suspense novels out under, under my name, um, but I've also got a, a, a pseudonymous book out uh, called The Agency. Um, uh, and you wouldn't know it's me because the author's name is Allie O'Brien. Um, and I actually worked on the book with Allie, my, with my, my agent. And uh, uh, it is completely different. It's, it's, um, it's sort of sex in the city meets the devil wears Prada. Um, <laughs> so it, it's female first person narrator. It's set in, in London and New York. Uh, it was just a hoot to write. And I, I hope it's a hoot to read. Um, so if you're looking for, um, you're looking to see me channeling my inner woman. Um, <laughs> the agency is the one to read. Well, the agency, we had a best picture winning executive producer in Hollywood who absolutely loved the agency, wanted to make the movie of it, uh, wanted to cast Emily Blunt in the lead role. Um, this is the kind of person that you would think could just snap her fingers and get studio funding for a deal. Uh, it was the right property in the hands of the right person, but it was the wrong time. This was 2009. The recession was at its pit. It was, uh, you know, the economy was in awful shape. Um, they had come off six months of, of uh, threaten, threatening an actor strike in Hollywood. Deals were frozen everywhere. They just couldn't get the studio backing for the project. And, um, and so, you know, Hollywood, they kind of, you know, if something doesn't come together in the, in the first few weeks, they, they kind of lose interest and, and, and move on. So that was a huge disappointment. Uh, you know, we keep, we keep knocking on the door, and, uh, and we've got some, some you know, nibbles, and we'll see what happens uh, as we go forward. I do think there are a couple things that, that play against uh, us a little bit on the Hollywood side. One is that my books tend to be very complex. There's a lot of different threads that come together, and uh, I think you get producers that think, how are we going to take that, that complexity and adapt it into a, a film that, that you know, reader, the, the watchers will understand in, in, in 90 minutes. Um, now, I think that's what screen, you know, writers do. And, and, and frankly, we're also looking more at the TV side now than the movie side, because I think TVs are, TV series are doing more longer story arcs, and so that complexity actually might play to our advantage at that point. But uh, I, I also think there, there is the issue of uh, producers who are out in LA, um, you know, sitting on their Malibu, you know, porches in their shorts, who are thinking, Huh, so we'd be filming in Duluth <laughs> in January. Hmm, not so much. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that, I mean, again, timing is so important because frankly, um, one of the things about Hollywood is they, they tend to be pretty darn derivative that if something is successful, um, they, they want to kind of go out and do the same sort of thing. So if, if if you're fortunate in your timing that, that something that in your genre has, has done really well at the box office or done really well in TV ratings, 
more likely that people are going to start you know, looking at what you want to do. And, and I think there is more of a trend toward, uh, particularly on the TV side, to very um, mature, well-written, complex, thoughtful crime drama. And you've got some wonderful, wonderful series that have been brought out. And you've got things like uh, Broadchurch, which was brought over from the UK, where again you had a sort of a long story arc and, and, and very uh, emotional, in-depth characterizations. So my hope is that maybe the pendulum is swinging in the direction of the kinds of things that, that, that I like to write. So um, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. And if you know anyone, you know, let me, let me know. So. This question inquires whether local writers ever get together socially, especially with so many living in Minnesota. Yeah, sometimes. Um, I mean, I, I certainly know a lot of the local writers, and um, it, it, it's often more in the context of, you know, events that come up that, that we'll get together, um, you know, if a, a book convention is in town or there's some library uh, uh, event and things like that. Um, you know, for me, I don't tend to, uh, I don't tend to hang out a lot with other writers, uh, and it's more from a standpoint of just me personally that, um, it, writing is such a, an intense, all-consuming kind of profession that, you know, in those moments when I'm able to kind of tear myself away from writing, I, I, want to, I, I want my friends to be people that sort of have nothing to do with the writing world. Because, you know, if I were hanging out with writers, what would writers talk about? You know, they're going to they're gonna piss and moan about editors and publishers, and, you know, and we're, we're, we're going to talk about what I, you know, we're, we're, what are we working on. And, and frankly, when I'm, when I'm not working on it, I'd rather talk about it just about anything else. Uh, than, than the book business, because it is an all-consuming kind of thing. So it's, it's uh, uh, but we've got a great community of writers in, in Minnesota, um, particularly in, in the mystery genre. We've just got some wonderful, wonderful writers in this state. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's the, the winters, and we all kind of <laughs> sit inside and think dark thoughts for, the, uh, for six months, so. This question seems to be a favorite with fiction writers. An audience member asks whether Freeman plans out his stories before he writes it, or if they come together as he goes. Um, generally speaking, I yeah, I know what's I know what's going to happen um, because my books are so complex and there are so many threads coming together. I think it'd be really easy to sort of write yourself into a corner if you didn't know how all these things were were going to lace together. It's so it's a very complex process at the beginning of of organizing the book of kind of seeing how these threads are going to work and 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 you end up spending a lot of time thinking through different themes, different characters, different things that might happen and and you'll you'll think of one great idea and that will break something else that you've been thinking about before and so you have to start kind of threading the plot together and and making everything work. Um, and so once I've done that, that doesn't usually change. That's what I kind of think of as the backstory. It's uh, sort of who did what to whom and why. Um, what does change is how I tell that story to the reader. I will outline the whole book, um, but I outline loosely enough that um, you, you can let the uh, you can let the writing process be organic. And and the reality is, as you're getting words on paper, the the characters in the story evolve and, and take you in directions that you may not have uh, thought uh, at the beginning. And and that can't happen until you're actually in the midst of the writing process and and you get to know the characters. Um, so it's not that. What happens in, in the background tends to change, but how I reveal that information and how I actually lay it out and create the suspense for the reader, that will evolve as I go. So by the time I'm done with one section of the book, 
I'll usually have to go back and kind of re-outline the rest of the book because a lot has changed since I, I started that process. And that's been a good thing because it, it makes you a little bit more neurotic as you're writing because you don't necessarily know on any given day where it's going to take you. But I also think it becomes more spontaneous and, and more exciting. And, and if it's exciting for me, then it's going to be exciting for the reader. In our last question of the night, someone inquires how Freeman comes up with his book titles, how they evolve over time, and at what point they take their final shape. I try not to get too emotionally attached to titles uh, because they almost always change along the way. Uh, in fact, the only book, the only book where the title has stayed the same from my original conception and first draft all the way through publication uh, is The Burying Place. That was my title from the get-go and, and it stayed the title all the way through to the end. Every other book, the title has changed uh, along the way. Um, for example, Immoral, uh, that um, when I wrote Immoral, the original working title was Rachel's Body. And we sold Immoral in 17 languages and publishers around the world were united in two things. They loved the book uh, and the title was not going to be Rachel's Body. Uh, so, <laughs> So we went back to the drawing board, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and Immoral was the, the, the next title that we came up with, much to my mom's dismay. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, titles, titles just change, and, and it is hard because I will come up with a title that I really like and that, that just works for me, but you also have to listen to the publishers and, and how they assess how those titles are going to be used from a marketing perspective, and, um, and, and things end up changing. S spilled blood. Um, which, won, which won the Thriller Award, um, and is now out in paperback. Um, uh, Spilled Blood, the original, uh, just figured I'd throw that in. <laughs> Spilled Blood, the original working title of that book was The Water God. Um, I love that title. Nobody else loved that title. Um, so, uh, so, and, and, and so we, we went back to the drawing board and, and we're looking at other titles, and Spilled Blood actually um, I, I will confess the, 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 the dirty secret, Spilled Blood has nothing to do with the book. We took a cruise to the Baltic for our 25th anniversary and uh, we, we stopped in St. Petersburg and we visited the, uh, uh, the, 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 the church on Spilled Blood in St. Petersburg and, and everybody else is snapping pictures and going, oh, look at that amazing cathedral and I'm taking out my Blackbird going, Spilled Blood, that is a great title. So, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me this evening. Yes. So. That's it from our Rum River Library event with Brian Freeman. Catch our next club book with Peter Guy and Amy Green in conversation at the Roseville Library on Tuesday, April 15, 2014 at 7 p.m. Meet Peter Guy and Amy Green, gear questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season on our Clubbook Facebook page. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to Anoka County Library for hosting Brian Freeman and to all other libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you 
at the library. 